listeners, and welcome once again to the Phantom Lake Almanac, a broadcast dedicated to the Phantom Lake community and you. We promise tonight's episode will be chock full of relevant information, human interest, and excitement you can't find anywhere else on your radio dial. In addition, we will be joined by several special guests and enjoy a musical performance by the Matthew Elam Band. Faithfully, I am your host, Gary Keller, and I thank you for joining us this fine evening. And now, as we do at the beginning of every show, we shall reveal the answer to last week's trivia question. The answer, dedicated listeners, is chrysanthemums. Chrysanthemums. And now... uh, Wait, I've just been handed a three and a half by five inch note card on which is printed in orange colored pencil the following. H.G. Wells, signed Sven. I honestly have no idea what this means, but when scraps of paper containing words are put in front of me, it is my job to read them. If nothing else, you can always count on me to do my job. And now, the news in brief, brought to you by Wham Bam Thank You Ham, the spiced pork substitute that packs a flavorful yet mysterious punch. What exactly is Wham Bam Thank You Ham? Does it matter when it tastes this good? Wham Bam Thank You Ham, don't ask. And now, the news in brief. Successful local farmer George Yates has formally announced his intentions to begin legally selling his brand of potent homemade liquor under the aptly titled Old Man Yates brand name. He claims it should be appearing on the shelves of reputable local markets once his site returns. A tidbit of juicy gossip, which unofficially began amongst the ladies of the Gosh Yarnet Quilting Bee, has reached the offices of the Phantom Lake Almanac and, apparently, love is in the air for everyone's favorite local telephone operator and everyone's third favorite butcher. Good luck, you crazy kids. Finally, the exaltation of last regret celebration scheduled for this Friday night at Our Lady of Perpetual Constancy has been cancelled due to second thoughts. In its place, local theater troupe, the PHL Players, will perform selections from the popular Broadway musical When We Were Young Enough to Remember. Admission is free. This concludes the News in Brief. Brought to you by Wham Bam Thank You Ham. Wham Bam Thank You Ham. Tasting vaguely of ham since 1917. And now, our top story. This week marks the 10-year anniversary of an unexplained local mystery that continues to stump citizens and law enforcement alike. What happened to the Phantom Lake Four? Twas ten years prior to this broadcast that local heartthrob George, his longtime sweetheart Penelope, best friend and self-described class clown Jonathan, and Jonathan's 
Some would say, disreputable girlfriend Amy decided to celebrate their high school graduation with a weekend of camping deep in the woods surrounding our beautiful namesake, Phantom Lake. Also along for the journey was a young woman named Elizabeth, valedictorian of their class and Penelope's lifelong friend. By all accounts, when the teens left for their trip, they seemed in good spirits, with the exception of Elizabeth, who, according to her older brother, seemed agitated and afraid. However, he chalked that up to her being, in his words, afraid of everything. Unfortunately, this is where the mystery begins. Of the five young people who went into the woods on that warm spring day, only Elizabeth returned three short days later, but with no memory of the incident. Even under intense examination by authorities well-versed in such matters, she could not recall any part of the ordeal. Sadly, the strain of lost time proved too much for young Elizabeth, who suffered a psychotic break after claiming to be impregnated by an alien warlord inhabiting the body of Dr. Franklin Fraser, a biology professor from Phantom Lake University who tragically passed away shortly thereafter. Heavily medicated and under constant watch, she currently resides in the maximum security wing of the Wasawa Mental Hospital with her son, Clark. So, what really happened? How can four well-adjusted young people simply disappear without a trace? And how can a well-behaved, though awkward, straight-A student escape the same fate, but retain no memory of such tragic events? Theories have been bandied about for some years and range from plausible to downright, if you'll excuse my use of the common vernacular, bat poop crazy pants. Coming up later in the program, we will dive much deeper down the rabbit hole that is the mystery of the disappearance of the Phantom Lake Four. Please stay tuned. And now it's time for your Phantom Lake County Farm Report. Yields are up. Prices are down. Prepare for war, my friends. This has been your Phantom Lake County Farm Report. And now it's time for a detour into the often misunderstood mind of those who spend their precious few moments on Earth creating works of short narrative fiction. Today's tale comes from the far-off land of Brooklyn, New York, as author Alex Schwartzman treats us to a haunting science fiction yarn entitled Spider Song. We listen to the spider song. The spiders are far away, just at the edge of our senses, whispering a haunting and beautiful melody into our minds. The grown-ups are oblivious, as always. They are having several conversations at once around the campfire, laughing and gossiping. It's a nuisance because we can't enjoy the spider song nearly as well, not with all the distraction. We use a reliable trick. We have Sheila ask for a story. Sheila is the youngest, and she hates to speak using words even more than the rest of us. But we nudge her along, and she tugs on old Jens's coat. 
He is only too happy to oblige. Kids and grown-ups alike gather around the fire. Everyone else quiets down and settles in to listen to Jens. What story would you like, dear? asks Jens. Do you want to hear about the home world or about our voyage among the stars? Nah, that stuff's boring, says Sheila. Tell us about the spiders. Jens frowns. The grown-ups don't like the spiders at all, but Sheila looks pleadingly up at Jens with big hazel eyes, and he surrenders. When our ship crashed 19 years ago, things were real bad. We had very little food and supplies, and only a vague idea about how to live off the land. There were many problems and dangers to overcome, but the spiders, they were the worst. Some of the grown-ups shift uncomfortably. They stare past the silk-covered trees at the edge of the clearing and into the darkness of the forest, fearing an ambush. We know there are no spiders lurking nearby. Their song is still very far away. The spiders of this world were the scariest creatures we've ever encountered, Jens says. They were fast, deadly, and huge, three times the size of a man, too much for us to handle. We lost seven people in two months and had no choice but to abandon the original camp and move further away from the forest. Eva, the eldest of the children, shares her memory of the crash site. It's all corroded metal and scorched ground, an uncomfortable, almost alien place. We break away from the image and take solace in the spider song, which is a little louder now and very soothing. Years went by, and the rescue we had hoped for never came. We made a life for ourselves in the relative safety of the plains, but our fledgling colony needed the forest. We gathered plants, hunted game, and collected spider silk, despite the danger. Kyle caresses his spider silk sweater. It's very rugged, but soft and warm, and all of us like how it feels against Kyle's fingertips. Life was very tough for us back then. We sent hunting parties into the forest to get what we need, but the spiders hunted us in turn. Not a year went by without us losing at least one person to the bugs. It was bad, until the children began to grow up, until we realized that those born on this planet could sense the spiders somehow, from a distance. Eva and Kyle share a memory from when they were little. In it, they walk past the silk-covered trees to fill a bucket of water from the nearby lake. Suddenly, a spider emerges, far from the deep forest its kind inhabits. Eva and Kyle are terrified. The spider looms over them, but it does not attack. Instead, it prods and probes at their thoughts. Then, it fills their heads with music. Fear evaporates. They are mesmerized by the melody. Clumsily, the children sing back. For several minutes, the spider listens patiently to their attempts, and then retreats gracefully toward the trees. Jens pats Sheila on the head. We don't know what it is that makes you kids born on this world different, 
but we are thankful anyhow. This is why we bring kids on every hunting trip now. You can tell us when the spiders are coming. We haven't lost a single person in the last few years. Safe and comfortable by the fire, the grown-ups are nodding off. Jens continues to tell stories, but they are only noise. We listen to the spider song. It is loud now, a chorus from many spiders who are gathering, dozens of them drawing nearer and surrounding the camp. The spiders are aware of us, and we of them. We are not afraid. We are both of this world, the spiders and us. Just like the spiders, we are a hive, able to share thoughts and emotions, and be close with each other in a way our parents could never understand. It's only the adults, the intruders, the aliens whose minds are mute that the spiders hate. The spiders are singing a war song. It is full of joy, anticipation of victory, and demise of their enemies. We sing back to the spiders with our minds, strong and confident this time, our thoughts in full harmony with theirs. They are almost here. Alex Schwartzman is a writer, translator, and game designer from Brooklyn, New York. Over 80 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Galaxy's Edge, Intergalactic Medicine Show, and many other magazines and anthologies. He won the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction and was a finalist for the 2015 Canopus Award for Excellence in Interstellar Fiction. He is the editor of the Unidentified Funny Objects annual anthology series of humorous science fiction and fantasy. His collection, Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma and Other Stories, and his steampunk humor novella H.G. Wells' Secret Agent were both published in 2015. Please visit his website at alexschwartzman.com and send him some money. It is important to note that alexschwartzman.com is spelled A-L-E-X-S-H-V as in Valentine, A-R-T-S-M-A-N. AlexSchwartzman.com. Thank you, Mr. Schwartzman, for lending your considerable talents to our program. We are most appreciative. And now... Back to our top story. Ten years ago, five teenagers went camping in the woods surrounding Phantom Lake. Three days later, only one came back, but with no memory of what happened. The others seemingly disappeared without a trace. But were they the only people in the woods that weekend? According to the accepted narrative, no one else was near the Phantom Lake woods when the teens disappeared. However, after dedicating our crack team of investigative reporters to getting to the rock bottom of this story, it seems the accepted narrative isn't exactly what it appears to be. In fact, our team uncovered what can only be described as anomalies. First, our loyal protectors, the esteemed Phantom Lake Canoe Corps, officers of which 
dutifully patrol the body of water our quaint little town is named after, claim none of their employees were assigned to the area in which the teenagers were camping during the 48-hour window in which they were allegedly there. This, in itself, is highly unusual. The Phantom Lake Canoe Corps regularly arrays its fleet in such a way that virtually every square inch of the surface of the lake is patrolled once every eight hours. This efficient and, may we say, brilliant technique is referred to by the Canoe Corps as the Phantom Lake Canoe Net, a metaphorical net through which nothing escapes. How, then, did this particular weekend end up being inexplicably different than all the others? Why, on a weekend where four seemingly normal kids vanished, would the Phantom Lake Canoe Corps not fully deploy its impenetrable net? When we pressed the Canoe Corps leadership for more answers, we were met with stone-cold silence. Except by one canoe cop, an officer preposterously named Sven Svensson, who seemed friendly to a fault and, though completely useless in the overall scheme of this story, since he claims to have no memory of what he was doing that weekend, he wanted desperately to show our team a device he claims to have invented which makes time travel possible. Because of our overly polite Midwestern upbringings, we could not bring ourselves to disengage from the officer. He seemed very nice, and obviously meant well, so we listened politely for hours, and left, sadly, unconvinced. Upon exiting the building, we found the sun had set, and our team was quite hungry. Brad, our insufferable intern, kept complaining. When confronted, he again claimed his blood sugar was low, and that that, somehow, was reason enough for his rotten mood. It's amazing how every time he's in a bad mood, or does something wrong, or is incredibly annoying, he blames it on his blood sugar. One time, he stole my lunch right out of the station refrigerator. He claims it was a mistake, and he thought it was his. He said when his blood sugar gets low, he can't think straight, and apparently that makes it possible for him to believe a lunch made specifically for me by my wife, which clearly had my name written on the bag, was somehow his. Brad is an unpleasant human being. No one likes him. I like him the least of everyone. Next, to make our story more interesting by pushing an absurd supernatural angle, we talked to a local university professor about the possible involvement of ghosts in the Phantom Lake 4's disappearance, and because of his odd speech patterns in which he paused for far too long, far too often, we began to suspect he wasn't being completely upfront with us. Not surprisingly, our ridiculous ghost theory was quickly shot down, but 
something much more interesting arose as a result of our meeting. We dug deeper and found that this professor, who from this point forward we will refer to as Pawsey, was unaccounted for during the weekend in question. In fact, Pawsey's graduate student, a one Stephanie Yates, was also unaccounted for during the same time period. And, on top of that, Miss Yates turned up dead not six months later, her death ruled accidental. How did she die, you ask? According to the accepted narrative, she drowned while doing science on Phantom Lake with, you guessed it, Professor Pawsey himself. And who pulled her cold, tragic, lifeless body from the waters of the lake? None other than the kind, overly talkative but impressively ambitious canoe cop, Officer Sven Svensson. And this is not all. The story only gets more convoluted from this point forward. But because we need to keep every one of you glued to your radio and to satisfy the contracts we signed with our sponsors, they are legally binding after all, we must cut away from our top story and fill the time in between with other entertaining content. Have no fear, we will return to our top story much later in the show, but most likely our coverage will leave you with far more questions than concrete answers. In fact, it's designed to work that way so no one ever knows the definitive truth and, every so often, we can return to this well that keeps on giving and simply repackage what you've already experienced with minor changes that don't necessarily enhance your enjoyment in any real way, but instead play into the instincts that make you feel like you should collect every version that's released. Because who out there among you wouldn't want to own, uh, listen to, every edition of our top story? What would your friends and fellow Phantom Lake enthusiasts think of you if you were to skip a certain edition simply because you think you've experienced all the joy there was to experience? I'm sure they'd be extremely disappointed in you. Don't disappoint the people you care about most. Stay tuned for the sort of conclusion of our top story after this word from our sponsors. The Phantom Lake Almanac is brought to you by AIR. It's free. It's everywhere. It's not always clean, but it is useful. In fact, it's quite important to your long-term survival. Don't leave home without it. Air. You are listening to the Phantom Lake Almanac. As always, I am your ever-dependable host, Gary Keller, and I welcome you back to our show. I'm glad you're here. I appreciate you. I appreciate your warmth, your humor, your improbable good looks, and your generosity of spirit. However, you should probably work on your humility. We have received several complaints. And now is the time in our broadcast where we take a musical moment 
to collectively ingest a hearty, though not too salty, snack made of notes and chords and fluttery melodies. This week, we bring you a catchy little bluegrass ditty by the Michael Elam band called Wagon Wheel. We promise it'll be stuck in your head for at least three days. But don't quote us on that. Actual results may vary. And now, Wagon Wheel. temperature will most likely fall somewhere between cold and warm. Bring a jacket. You might not need it. This has been your Phantom Lake County Weather Report. And now, 
The Poetry Corner with our resident poet, me. Full disclosure, I have never attended nor received any degree from any poetry college. I acknowledge and understand that writing poetry can be extremely dangerous and should be left to the professionals. However, I just can't help myself. The poetry is in me, and if I don't get it out, it will replicate and then it will be only a matter of time before I succumb to its DNA-destroying poisons and become a living weapon. Our poem for today is entitled Rusty Nail, and it goes something like this. Oh, Rusty Nail, I once stepped on you. I needed a tetanus shot. I do not like shots. Oh, Rusty Nail, you would make a good name for a tavern, though I'm not sure I would drink there. It sounds like a rough place I wouldn't fit into. Oh, Rusty Nail, perhaps your first name is actually Russell, or maybe it's just Russ. Nail, of English origin, is a rather uncommon surname. Perhaps, Rusty Nail, I will find a use for you. You may not believe it, but I will try. See if I don't. This has been your Poetry Corner. And now we return to the inconclusive conclusion of our top story. Ten years ago, four teenagers disappeared. One did not. The canoe cops may have lied, or did they simply drop the ball? There was a professor and his graduate student. But could it be possible more people were involved in the incident at Phantom Lake? Things we know for sure. Five teenagers were camping near the lake that weekend. We know there were apparently holes in the Phantom Lake Canoe Corps' supposedly impenetrable canoe net. We know a professor from the local university and his graduate student, who turned up not alive not six months later, were unaccounted for at that same time, though no records of their visiting the lake that weekend have ever surfaced. In fact, absolutely no records of anything or anyone being near the lake that weekend exist at all. Why, it's almost as if someone or several someones have gone out of their way to scrub reality of the truth of what actually happened that fateful weekend. Because we here at the Phantom Lake Almanac refuse to believe that four plausibly well-behaved teenagers can completely disappear without a trace, and because we never tire of talking about this mystery that will most likely never be solved, we are excited to announce that our digging has yielded some shocking new information. Information we will share with you... Now. According to our extensive and exclusive research, the Phantom Lake Four are not the only people who went missing without a trace that weekend. Saturday evening of said weekend, two men, who shall remain nameless to protect their families, both employees at the MIM Industries Atomic Energy Plant, located just outside of town, 
left their respective wives to allegedly meet their regular group of poker buddies for a rousing night of gambling and drinking at a cabin owned by one of the aforementioned buddies, a spot where, according to publicly available property records, is located on the outskirts of the Phantom Lake Woods. Night fell, and, as it was not unusual for these men to stay out late, especially one of their wives remarked, if they were winning, both spouses put their respective broods to bed and took some much-needed me-time. One of the wives recalled taking what she referred to as a vigorous bath before turning in for the night. The other mentioned reading a romantic novel while drinking red wine until, and we quote, she could no longer feel her toes nor knew which direction was up. The Lord's day dawned, and both wives awoke to find neither husband had returned from the previous night's game. They contacted each other by telephone, discovered their spouses were missing, and, after trying to one-up the other by contriving ever more colorful adjectives to describe their wayward husbands, they reached out to the other wives of the circle of men usually involved in these infrequent card tournaments, and quickly learned there was no poker game the night before. Thus, another mystery was born. As of this date, neither man has been located. Ten years have passed, and both wives have since moved on. One of them described her lost husband as a good, though not really very smart, man, who often did what his friend told him to do. She talked of missing him every day since his disappearance, and hoping against hope that someday he would return. She even leaves their porch light on every night to help him, and I quote, find his way home. When asked what she believes really happened to her husband, she thought for a long moment before one solitary, enigmatic word left her lips. Aliens. The spouse of the other man, however, was not as romantic in her notions of what may have happened to her husband. In fact, asking her about it turned out to be a very bad idea. Our investigative team was forced to endure an intense, profanity-laden diatribe about what a, and I'm quoting here, f***ing bum her husband was, and she prattled on at length about her theory that, and again I'm quoting, he took off with that f***ing blonde who and she can herself. Again, being good Midwesterners, we listened and smiled and agreed profusely that she was far better off now. Slowly, one by one, we found ways to disengage from the conversation until only one of us remained. And boy, did she really lay into that guy. Luckily, it was our intern Brad, whom I dislike a great deal. Dare I say, he deserved it. And, best of all, when he tried to use the blood sugar excuse to escape her clutches, she made him a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and kept on talking. Brad was stuck listening to her talk for at least 90 minutes longer than the rest of us. It was glorious. Why exactly? Has no one to date linked the Phantom Lake Four with the disappearance of these two men on that same weekend? Could it be just a coincidence? Or could it be 
something else, something far more insidious. Or could we simply be pathetically grasping at straws? Perhaps we will never know. You know, while we're asking questions, I have a couple I've been dying to ask since we got into this. First, why does that professor guy pause so much when he speaks? Could he be suffering from an undiagnosed seizure disorder of some kind? Or maybe he thinks he's cool when he talks like that. Heck, what if he doesn't even realize he talks that way and everyone has let him get away with it for so long that he has no reason to question his own speech patterns and everyone else is too embarrassed to call him out on it for fear of creating a really uncomfortable situation that would shed an awkward light on everyone who has allowed this to continue for so long. If that's the case, isn't it really our fault collectively? I mean... Take the following nonsensical phrase, I am the walrus. There are many ways to say that phrase, and depending on which word you emphasize, it can convey different emotions and or telegraph what you find most important about what it is you're trying to say. Allow me to demonstrate. I am the walrus. I am the walrus. I am the walrus. I am the walrus. At no time would it really make sense to say that phrase like that professor guy does. Again, let me demonstrate, but this time I'll say it like he would. I am the walrus. Seriously, it makes no sense. But I digress. In light of the new information we uncovered regarding the disappearance of these two men, during the same time frame as the Phantom Lake 4, we caught up with Sheriff Eugene Hayes while he was cordoning off the burnt wreckage of a beloved local malt shop and pressed him about the possibility of a link. Though you know what's coming, here's what he had to say. I can neither confirm nor deny that any such link exists, nor is now the right time to be discussing such matters. Right. Is anyone surprised by Sheriff Hayes' response? How many times must the authorities try to sell us the same dog and pony show before they realize we are not buying it? In conclusion, ten years have passed, and we still have no idea what really happened on that doomed camping trip. Four young people are gone. One woman ended up in a mental hospital, a young graduate student drowned. That professor guy is still around, but, last we heard, is thinking of running for public office. One of the canoe cops thinks he invented a time machine. One man may have been abducted by aliens, and another may have run off with some f***ing blonde bitch. And, as always, we were stonewalled by the powers that be. Will this mystery ever be solved? Join us in 10 more years when we revisit this story and present even more potentially useless information that does nothing to further the narrative. This concludes our top story. And now, gentle listeners, we have a special guest in our studios, one who needs no introduction, but regardless... 
I will give her one. Enid the Enigmatic is Phantom Lake County's premier fortune-telling clairvoyant, and every so often, we invite her on our show to share with us a few of her wacky predictions about the future. Though I'm sure she knew I was going to say it, it's always a pleasure to have her. Welcome to our studios, Enid. Thank you for having me. Now, you have a very interesting prognostication to share with our audience, do you not? I do, indeed. Fantastic. Whenever you're ready, the floor is yours. Many nights ago, I woke from a deep sleep and had a terrifying vision of the future. In this vision, I foresaw that the human race was enslaved by a magical, ever-changing book which contained the faces of every person on planet Earth. In this book, every man, woman, and child kept a list of their friends, many of whom realistically were no more than acquaintances, while most were basically strangers who were only interested in irritating others with their outlandish political views. This book was so powerful, it knew everything about everyone, and easily and often destroyed lifelong friendships over very unimportant things. This book fit easily in a pocket or purse, and its power was so vast, most found themselves suffering drug-like withdrawals when they tried to ignore it for too long. It enslaved the population to the point that humanity had lost its ability to survive without it, and its evil power spread until there was nothing left but the Book of Faces. We are doomed. That sounds downright ridiculous. Thank you, Enid the Enigmatic, for gracing us with your presence today. We always enjoy having you on our program, if for no other reason than you give us unbelievably ludicrous things to laugh at. And now, it's time for our trivia question of the day. What 19th century science fiction novelist is best known for his books The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine? If you know the answer, please write it legibly on a three and a half by five inch note card in orange pencil. Punch a hole in the note card, tie a thin ribbon of at least four feet in length through the hole, and attach the other end to a green helium filled balloon. Finally, release the balloon outside. When and if your balloon returns to the ground, if it is found before anyone else's, Regardless of what is actually written on the note card, you will win a fabulous prize consisting of a lifetime supply of Wham Bam Thank You Ham, the spiced pork substitute 
that packs a flavorful yet mysterious punch. Remember, writing your name on the card is unnecessary as Phantom Lake County's premier fortune-telling clairvoyant Enid the Enigmatic has volunteered to use her totally real psychometric powers to determine the winner using only the index finger of her left hand. Well, as you know, that music you hear can mean only one thing. We have reached the end of this week's show. Before we go, I want, as I always do, to reach ever so gingerly into our mailbag, carefully pull out one of your letters, and take a moment to silently judge your penmanship before I open the letter and read it for our entire listening audience to hear. Don't forget, this point in the show marks the highest point of excitement in any episode of the Phantom Like Almanac, as it is one of the few moments completely unscripted. We really don't know what we're going to get, and we promise to always stand by our promise that we will never, ever, ever proofread or pre-select these letters. We will experience them exactly as you do, at the very same moment that you will. We have absolutely no foreknowledge of what these letters contain, and we accept the consequences of whatever may happen. Hold tight, dear listeners. Here we go. Okay, I have selected a letter. I am pulling it from the mailbag. I am inspecting it, and my silent judgment of this person's handwriting will remain my own. I feel no need to share. I am now opening the letter, and I shall read it. Dear Phantom Lake Almanac, you are my favorite show. My life feels incomplete if I don't listen. The one time I missed an episode, I fell into a fugue state during which I had no memories with which I could form a basis for my own personality. My wife, or the woman who claims to be my wife, says I will be fine, in time, and perhaps someday I will remember the births of my three children. Whether or not that day ever comes, regardless, I will continue to be your show's most devoted fan and supporter. Sincerely, Dave. P.S. I randomly met your intern Brad at the farmer's market last weekend. I didn't like him either. Thank you, Dave, for your kind letter. We appreciate you and your steadfast loyalty. And now, dear listeners, we have come to the end of this edition of the Phantom Lake Almanac. Until next time, I leave you with this timeless quote from one of the greatest novels of the 20th century, The Notebook by Nicholas Sparks. The reason it hurts so much to separate is because our souls are connected. Maybe they always have been and will be. Maybe we've lived a thousand lives before this one, and in each of them we've found each other. And maybe each time we've been forced apart for the same reasons. That means that this goodbye is both a goodbye for the past 10,000 years and a prelude to what will come.
For more information about this episode and its contributors, both musical and literary, visit us online at phantomlakealmanac.com.